Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of the law firm HBA, high above Bryant Park in New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. Uh, For this episode, I'm joined by veteran designer and activist, John Bartlett. John, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, so, Ohio, born and bred. Yes. Then to Harvard. Yep. And then to FIT. Yes. And there are a lot of unique things about you, but certainly one of them, I I think, would be that pivot from graduating Harvard, which doesn't really have a design, other than perhaps architecture at the undergrad level, doesn't really have a design background to FIT. What, um, what, what led to that decision? And, um, you know, what did you take from the Harvard experience to FIT that was meaningful? Well, interestingly, so I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I went to a Catholic school, so I wore a uniform every day. And the uniform actually was my first indication of the fact that I liked clothing as expression. Because every day I try to change my uniform, but staying within the parameters. And somehow I got into Harvard. It was never on my, um, it was never something that I thought about. But as I got closer to graduating, I applied, I got in. And during my years at Harvard, as well as my years in high school, I really found this love of fashion. I followed it. I Once I got my driver's license, the first place that I went to was Salvation Army so that I could buy a bunch of thrift clothes. Mm-hmm. So I really found that clothing was a way, a means of expression. And we're in the 80s here. Yes. So, so, so can, can I just get some visualization of the John Barrett look in the early 80s? It was a mix of very preppy Brooks Brothers, but then cut with a lot of new wave punk, uh-huh. new romantic, <clears throat> pardon me. So really just this um, sort of East Coast look that was quite disheveled. Uh, I really did love thrift clothes. And um, so I wore a lot of layers and layers and layers. But uh, like, for example, I grabbed a mailbag that was sitting underneath a, a, um, a little mail, a mail carrier. And I cut the bottom out, out of it and wore it as a skirt. So there was a lot of uh, just very, a lot of experimentation. Mm -hmm. And, um, but also combined with this extreme love of preppy clothes, this extreme love of super classic type of style. So it was a really, really fun time for me. When I was at Harvard, I was disappointed because I thought everybody would be dressed to the nines. Like the preppy handbook. Right, which, but everybody was, was in sweat. just come out. Really. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But everybody was in sweatsuits. Um, nobody had, there was very few people that had like great style. So I would venture a lot out into Boston and I spent a lot of my time in nightclubs, which again really fostered my love of style and of expression. Mm-hmm. And um, after... I graduated from Harvard with a degree in sociology. I then went to London under the auspices of studying economics 
and I dropped out. I was there for five months, and I dropped out. So London School of Economics? Actually, no. It? It, my, that was my dad's dream, was that I would go to London School of Economics. But I was in a program at the London College. It was, it was another postgraduate program okay. in economics. And I dropped out after two weeks. I'm like, what am I doing here? And I ended up spending all of my, I cashed in my tuition and spent it all on King's Road, which was really where it was happening. Uh-huh. And that was where I found this incredible love of fashion because London in the mid eighties was everything. Yeah. And, and, and tailored clothing as well, which tailored, maybe you hadn't experienced as exactly, much from yeah. the sack suit, the Brooks brothers sack suit, which is kind of a, yeah, you know, an easy garment, but a less tailored garment to the epicenter of English. Tailoring. Oh yeah. No Savile row. And again, people in London, it was very interesting. It was very multicultural. So there was this real Savile row influence But then there was a a very heavy East Indian influence, African influence. So all of these cultures were converging in London in a way that I had never experienced. And so while I was in London, I decided I wanted to go to fashion school. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to get into fashion schools there. But at that point, they really weren't open to having a lot of people from the outside. So I ended up moving back to Cincinnati and then applying to FIT. And uh, so I moved to New York in the in February. Um, I guess it was, yeah, February 1986. So it'll it be 13 years this coming month. And um, I started going to night school at FIT, taking draping and sewing. And I really never even held a pair of scissors. All I knew is that I loved clothes. And so it was a fascinating time because... I was learning how to cut and sew. I was learning how to drape. This was all in women's wear. And then I found that they had a menswear program. Mm -hmm. So I ended up applying. It was a great two-year program. And I worked so hard. I actually felt like I worked harder there than I did at Harvard because it was something that I knew that I really wanted. Yeah. And as they say, education, youth is wasted on the young. I mean, my education at Harvard, I... in Looking back, I wish there. I wish I had worked harder. There are so many things I wish that I had studied, but that I didn't. Mm-hmm. But when I got to FIT in my twenties, my early twenties, I was much more serious. And also living in New York, I just found like this is where it's happening. I had amazing internships. Yeah. I was able to. Where, where did you intern? Well, during those in FIT? those days, so it was again a different period of time. I worked for a designer who died of AIDS. Um, a few years after I worked for him, called Willie Smith Willieware. Willie was a very, very influential designer of street style. I worked mm-hmm. for him, and I, actually, my first job out of FIT was designing the Willieware men's line after he had passed. Okay. I worked for a designer also who had died of AIDS, Bill Robinson, who was a very influential menswear designer of the day in the 80s. And then I worked for my mentor, who I ended up working for as well later on. Ronaldo Shamask, who is still working today, amazing, amazing architectural inspired minimalist designer. Yeah. So I had some great experiences, great internships. And in those days, you could just kind of call people up. I remember calling up the Calvin Klein offices looking for a job, and Grace Coddington answered the phone, and she was the designer. And she's like, Well, we're not really looking for anybody, but really just it was. The accessibility then to opportunity felt very different than it does today. 
But one of the great adv- pieces of it, one of the great pieces of advice that my father gave me when I moved to New York, he wasn't happy that I wanted to go into fashion. He wanted me to go to law school. Well, yeah, it sounds <clears> like it. London, <laughs> Harvard, London School of Economics. Right. You're being groomed. And he wanted you me to go. Had to a pedigree that would have yeah. lent itself certainly to to law school. He wanted me to go to law school or business school. And when I said I want to go to fashion school, he said, "Okay, well." And he had spent a lot of time in New York. He said, whatever it takes, if you have to wheel rolling racks down 7th Avenue, whatever it takes, pick up pins for the designers, just do whatever it is. And I do believe that that, that concept of humility um, really helped because I was able to get into a lot of places and just do whatever do and i did whatever anybody asked me to do were they unpaid internships or were they in those days yes they were yeah. some were unpaid um i did get a summer job that turned into a like an after school job and it was like for six dollars an hour but yeah a lot of them were unpaid and um but the opportunities to see how things worked was priceless yeah yeah and i felt I feel that today I don't feel like that same humility exists. I feel like there's this, and again, forgive me, people that might be listening, but I would feel like there's this sense of entitlement in the sense that I'm a designer. I, you know, if I don't have a runway show in the first year that I'm graduated from fashion school, you know, I want, they see this, they see the big picture, but they they don't see all the all the steps mm-hmm. behind the scenes that it takes to get to this place. And so there's this sense of why am I not famous yet? Yeah. Whereas in my day, and it was before the internet, I think that was part of it. We just you didn't have such immediate access to your customers or potential no, customers. No, exactly. Nor an ability, a platform to to catapult to a, a place of, of consumer relevance so quickly. Exactly. Um, but the benefit of, of what we'll call the old days right, yeah. um, was that sense of apprenticeship, yes. that sense of, of honing the craft and seeing not only the design elements, but also because these were smaller houses, the business elements. Yeah. Um, what, from So sociology major at Harvard, then FIT, you know, one of one of the elements that uh, design schools are critiqued on, uh, particularly because so many designers come out and and start their own lines, is the business acumen that also is necessary. Do you feel at FIT or even undergrad at Harvard you had the necessary tools? And just to go back and and, and give our listeners a little bit of. Uh, context you know you started your eponymous line in 1991 which was which was a menswear label at that point in time did you feel you had the business chops to be doing that or were you just i was flying by the seat of my (laughs) pants i had five thousand dollars i had no idea what i was doing and um but i had looked around i had worked for ronaldo shamask and that opportunity ended um, so I looked around and there was just nothing out there that was available. There weren't really any real jobs. And so mm-hmm. I had five grand. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make some samples and see what happens. Yeah. And just as a, as a personal background one of my best friends who I had moved to New York with along around the same time, his name was Rick. 
Hamilton. Rick was a brilliant designer, and his he was Tommy Hilfiger's first assistant, and he was a very very successful designer, and he died of AIDS at age thirty. So this was really the time of AIDS, which again yeah. is it seems so far away. In those days, people were dropping like flies. It was a very the fashion industry was hit very hard. Do you think, and I, this is, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to your answering of this question, yeah. but sort of in parents, do you think that what informed design in that era amidst the sadness and, and the horror of what was going on, that, that part of that was why it was such an era characterized by minimalism? I do believe that the AIDS crisis informed the design process. Absolutely. Um, in many many ways, it certainly it, it affected um, it affected the sense of that we were coming out of a period of opulence. The eighties were very right. characterized by big shoulder pads and opulence and neon, neon and gold and all of this sort of artifice to yeah, a real paring back mm-hmm. because people were faced with a real crisis. And they were faced with losing their friends. And there was a kind of a, a somber time. And that's when the Japanese designers come to Garçon, Yoji. Mm-hmm. Everyone was wearing black. It, it does reflect back to that that's period. Stoicism. Very much so. Yeah. And so my friend Rick got sick. And he died at age 30, 31. And this was right before I started my label. And after he died, I, I thought, okay, you know, I'm just going to go for it because who knows how, who knows how long any of us have. And it was yeah. very life affirming in the sense of loss. So I started my brand and came up with some samples and I called people that I knew. I got the names of buyers. I called them on the phone. Uh, my first appointment was with Bergdorf Goodman and they came down to my little apartment and they said, we want an exclusive. And that was the beginning. It was great. Yeah. And from there, I called the bar, the buyer Barney's the next season, Charvari, which was an amazing mm-hmm. retailer in those days, and slowly built a business, um, then began selling with Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman's, and it really grew. Those were the days of big department stores and big orders from those stores that were multi, that had multi-doors. And you, you're, you're being very modest, but during that time, you won two CFDA awards. Uh, really, one for an emerging designer, but at that point it was it was menswear specific and yeah. CFDA Menswear Designer of the Year. Yeah. Um, but back to the five thousand yeah. dollars seating cool. a company. Um, you know, I, I I actually believe that today, despite the fact that a company has more at its fingertips independently through e-commerce and social media platforms that can activate a lot of customers. Yes that the barriers to entry, the cost of starting up a fashion brand have never been higher. And that's because the model that you started your brand in, all you needed to do, at least to get a shot, at least to get that first at bat, was produce samples. Yes, exactly. And you had the design talent yourself. You it obviously knew enough resources in the city. In the city, you know, we're here in the garment district. Yeah. You could you could walk to to each of your resources and get it done. And then get in front of these large accounts, these national accounts. And if they liked it, and that's a big if, right? But if they liked it, you would immediately be a national brand, if not even an international brand. Because certainly European customer, 
maybe not the Chinese customer at that, at that, you know, decade, but the Japanese customer, the Korean customer would come into New York or LA and see it and want it. And all of a sudden you were international on, on, on such a small seed round. Um, we'll, we'll save for later questions, the, the cycle that that puts one on in terms of having to then produce and pay for that production. But do you, do you think that that's accurate? As you see young brands starting today, do they seem more advanced in terms of their funding because they have to be? Good question. Yeah, because in, in the 80s, 90s, it was very much about getting into a department store, building or building a specialty store business alongside that. Once you were in Saks or Bergdorf's, all these other stores followed suit. So mm-hmm. if you got into a couple of doors, then the rest would follow. And, of course, you had to ship and deliver and sell through, but that was sort of how that worked. Today, with the Internet, there are very, very few big labels that are coming up, and many of the most successful labels are not even selling in stores at all. They have an Internet store. They have an Internet business. They might do a pop-up, but they are not – they're not – what's the word I'm looking for – they're not in bed with the retailers, and so they're able to really create their own rules. Right. But with that comes a whole other set of factors, a whole other set of financial needs that were not that just didn't exist when yeah. I was beginning. And I think about this today. If I were to start a brand today, I don't even know really where I would begin. Right. It's a very, very different world. The cool thing is that you're able, you are able to reach your customer in a very different way and mm-hmm. quite immediately. Um, but it's also, I don't know, there's a, it's really work. Like when I, when I, when I started my business working, standing next to my rack at Saks Fifth Avenue, I really learned a lot. It was a very humbling experience. When I had my own retail store, I learned a lot because I, I really met my customer face to face. Where where was that store, and, so and it was, when did you when did it come online? So later on, I, I opened a store. Um, it was in the West Village. I opened it in two thousand and eight, right as the market was crashing, <laughs> and uh, I had it hopefully for, right after or no right before as, Lehman Brothers or after Lehman Brothers. It was right before. Okay, and um, it was a lovely little store in the West Village. I had this fantasy of which I lived in the West Village at that time of walking to work with my dog mm-hmm. opening the store and it was great I really enjoyed it and I really met my customers I met my I really got an idea of who this person is and really what they're looking for versus living in a bubble and designing some fantasy concept so I had a store for about 6 years and then things changed and like we can go into that later but I got other gigs that took my attention away from having a store, and so I moved on. Yeah. Well, and and that's an additional barrier to entry because many of these new entrants, I mean, I'll use use Warby Parker as an example, which – you know, really, really started by business school students, not uh, not design students. But your own brick and mortar is a component of that startup element, but a very high cost one. You know, yes. if you're going to open a store, let alone several, um, it's not just the rent obligation, but it's the staffing up. And it's recognizing that you have bolted on a whole other business to the traditional fashion design business, which is shopkeeper. 
Oh yeah. Um, and all of those obligations. Um, you know, the, the, the ideal would be a perfectly integrated, you know, Azara where they not only control their stores and their design, such as their design is, um, but also the means of production, you know, and, and, and control margin all the way through the Absolutely. process. Um, so, so back to you and the, the somewhat chronology. So, yeah. you know, more accolades and awards 2010, uh, American Apparel and Footwear Association's Designer of the Year, um, and then followed that up with the CFDA uh, Lexus Echo Fashion Award, and you came out with a completely sustainable line of menswear. Yes. Tell us about that. When did when did sustainability? Because that's that's really early days in terms of sustainable brands. Um, tell us about how that that came into your consciousness. Was it always there, or did it evolve over time? Absolutely. So when I began, I was manufacturing in America, mostly in New York City, and then I moved all of my production to Italy, which was every designer's dream. When I did that, I was able to develop a, a bigger international, a larger international business because shipping out of Italy with Italian goods was a um, was what every store wanted around the world. Mm-hmm. The quality and the the value that you could get out of Italy was second to none. Um, as things changed, when um, after nine eleven, the market shifted. A lot of orders were canceled. Um, I shifted my attention to licensing. I started licensing my name and finding partners that were doing men's suiting, shirts, ties, all different types of accessories. I branched out. I started designing for other brands. I took over um, a wonderful leather brand called Gurkha Mm -hmm. uh, for a few years. And then from there, still while doing my own thing, I also worked with the Claiborne brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with Tim Gunn, reached out to me. He was, at that point, the chief creative officer of Claiborne, Liz Claiborne. And they brought in Isaac Mizrahi to design the women's, and they brought me in to design the men's. And that was an amazing opportunity. Paid great uh, until the brand was sold to Pennies. And mm-hmm. that was really an interesting time because all of these brands were moving kind of down in the uh, in the marketplace they're just right si- right siding or right sizing themselves yeah they the the market had shifted the customer that was shopping for Liz Claiborne at Macy's or at Saks or Bloomingdale's was now shopping for it at JC Penney's mm-hmm. the quali- and, and that had an impact obviously on on what the price was going to be. And therefore you were then faced from a budgetary standpoint of you've got to design within this new ring fenced cost structure. Right. They didn't really need designers in the same way. Yeah. And, um, cause they were, when you, when you go to a place like pennies, which are an, it's an amazing, amazing opportunity. It's a very different game in the sense that, they're really backing into price. The mm-hmm. margins are are really sharp. So the design becomes a, a, a very different approach. Yeah. And it's still very fascinating. I ended up working with the Bonton stores, mm-hmm. which was also a an opening price point product. And we backed into prices. We really worked. I really learned about designing with margins. Yeah. And that was a wonderful learning curve for me after having come from 
designing in Italy and working with cashmere. So getting back to your question about sustainability. So in the 90s, it was really about luxury. The we I hadn't worked with super luxurious fabrics and materials until I started moving my production to Italy. And then everything was cashmere and these amazing wools. And it was just the, the, the luxury, the luxury, the luxury of having the most amazing tailors, all of this stuff became very important and Prada kind of set the tone. It was very much about the, the uptown lady and just the, the whole buzzword was luxury Mm -hmm. and that really was what everybody focused on for quite some time and then really around 2010 um, a little bit before that I really started looking at other things besides because there was so much luxury and luxury almost became commonplace right everybody was doing cashmere you could find cashmere at any price point. And so the idea of luxury really changed. Yeah. yeah. And to me, the Uniqlo 39.99 cashmere sweater exactly. really just blew yeah. that out of the water. Yeah. So all of these brands were able to buy luxury because they were buying millions of pieces of it so they could really sell it at a, a more accessible price point. So I I really believe that the focus changed from luxury to innovation. And I do believe still that the word innovation is is much more captivating, and that's really what's happening uh, with I think most of the successful brands in our marketplace. So the idea of sustainability to me was really born out of something else. I had this moment where I had just done a fashion show. I showed tons of leather, for example, and tons of wool, and it was a year when every designer started showing fur. Mm-hmm. And I had always been uncomfortable with fur. Actually, I used it a little bit in 2000. But at, in 2008, around that time, 2009, uh, fur made a huge comeback. And it was very upsetting to me on a personal level. Um, <clears throat> I think like three quarters of the designers in New York showed fur. And a lot of them were getting money to stage their fashion shows from the fur industry. And so at that point I said, okay, I really want to get clear about my own politics. I read a book alongside that period um, by the actress Elisa Silverstone called The Kind Diet. Mm -hmm. And overnight I said, okay, I'm going vegan. Uh, I'll never wear leather again. I'm not going to work in wool. Um, I just had this moment of like this. It was just, it was... I hate to use the word awakening because it, sound pre- it sounds pretentious, but I had a moment where I thought, okay, I can't consciously allow my design sensibilities to support industries that I don't feel comfortable with. So while everybody was using fur, I decided to kind of move the other direction. And so my idea of sustainability became about using fabrics that were recycled synthetics that were upcycled wool, like taking wool that had been used in the marketplace and reusing it. And so I was able to, through the CFDA Lexus grant, create a menswear brand, a menswear collection that was all upcycled wool, uh, cottons, all plant-based fabrics, and or man-made fibers that also were recycled. And for listeners who don't know what upcycled 
is that so process. upcycled for me is taking fabrics that have been really actually old garments and recutting right. them and re- repurposing the fabric. Mm-hmm. So I found all of this fabric that was either on eBay or in thrift stores, washed it, cleaned it, and then recut it and made some really, really cool coats out of and ponchos and things that were super cool and really one of a kind. So they, they really took on a whole new life. And so I enjoyed that process. And again, really kind of mixing the idea of innovation by using fabrics that were really futuristic in mm-hmm. the fact that they were closed looped. They were coming from closed looped factories, uh, meaning very like close to no waste and were at the height of innovation and really at the height, at the, at the edge of what, of what's next, the zeitgeist. And so for me, this whole idea of sustainability also was a wonderful journey for me because I felt like I was in line with my own sense yeah. of standards about animal advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, um, it's powerful to know that what you're doing, not just what you're, what you're wearing and what you're putting on your body, but, but actually what you're putting out there, you know, is, is something that thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of consumers are, are interacting with and buying. And so there, there is a great power in, in making that kind of a shift. Um, and there's a great marketing power as well. And it's a great in, story in, very much yeah, so. in, in announcing it. I think to a degree it's been appropriated by almost every brand. I mean, I can't think of a brand that doesn't at least have a portion of their website dedicated to, to how sustainable their production methodology is. And, and to a degree, some of them really take efforts in that direction. Stella McCartney comes to mind. Sure. Um, but others, it's, you know, because the means of production for most brands are not their own, it's a little bit of, they told me that they did it this way, so I'm going to believe them, and I'm not necessarily going to send boots on the ground right. um, to go check that out. So we'll put a pin in that. But back to, <laughs> back to your brand. And, you know, you came out of the gate with an eponymous brand, you know. Yeah. Um, was there any thought that went into that decision? Was it a foregone conclusion because you just felt everyone before you, essentially, I mean, that, that was the zeitgeist of those days. If you were a designer, you named your line after yourself. Yes. So I, when I first came out with my collection, I named it Bartlett after my last name. And then I added my first name. And I don't really remember how I got to that point. I like the idea of just having it be my last name mm-hmm. initially because it felt a little bit less about me. Um, and my whole concept was this new sense of masculinity. I had just read this book called Iron John about, I think, by Robert Bly. And there was this new sense of what masculinity was. And we were coming out of not fully, but there was a, there was, uh, we were moving into a post AIDS era and the whole idea of masculinity, sexuality, all these things were being talked about now mm-hmm. in a way that they were not before. And so when I started my brand, I liked the idea that it would just be Bartlett. And then I put my first name on there, John Bartlett, John. And, um, I guess it was, I didn't, there was nothing else like there, there are no other words that, that I could associate with or concepts that felt right to use as a label. And in those days, yeah, people, 
uh, many people put their names on their own labels. And Which certainly a majority of brands, if yeah, not and they, 90% of them. Yeah, and many of them still do um, because you're the person. And so I was selling myself. I was right. selling... My, I, was, I was selling myself as a brand. And was part of it, you also wanted to stand behind what you were designing? I mean, a, a, as an artist would, you know, sign a painting. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And, um, yeah, it just it helped. It, it really helped to associate a person mm-hmm. with a piece of clothing, good or bad. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, in those days, I don't think people questioned it as much. They just put their name on the brand. Yeah. Well, and so, and, and we don't need to disclose or not, you know, but I, I believe your company was always closely held by you. Yes. And so you never really had issues with respect to someone investing in your company and thereby owning a slice of your name. Right. But you did do a lot of licensing. Yeah. Which is, you know, renting your name. Yes. <laughs> so to speak. Any... Any um, cautionary tales there for perhaps, you know, lawyers or young designers listening where the, the person or the brand or the company renting your name uh, was not acting in a way or not putting product out there in a way that you agreed with? Yes. And as a matter of fact, so no, I never had, there was always this concept of getting a backer and it was like this elusive concept of this this sugar daddy waiting in the wings. (laughs) And I'm very thankful because I almost did go into a relationship where I would be basically selling my name. Mm -hmm. And it was a big company coming through in the late 90s. All of the designers that ended up signing on with this company no longer exist. So I, I dodged a bullet. Yeah. And I was excited by it because I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going to be the American LVMH. They're going to take care of me. Mm-hmm. And it it took so long to get a contract that we ended up pulling out. The other brands that did sign with them had these huge influxes of cash for two years and then went away. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I'm thankful that I never had that backer. And I know a lot of brands that will get outside investments but they really are catering and beholden to these people. Yeah. So, well, and at the end of that cycle, if unlike the European houses that have now been with us for over a century and are known merely by the, by the last name. Yes. In a way that's positive and sort of enabling to, to the children and grandchildren. Yes. And, um, you know, Donna Karen, by way of example, has has no interest whatsoever in in the company that that controls the rights to her name, yeah. and therefore it can be used. And you know, it was sold from the LVMH portfolio, where at least there was a certain LVMH stands for luxury. That is what that conglomerate does. That's the synergies they can bring to the brands they carry. It was sold from LVMH to G three, which is just a different cost proposition. They stand for you know, uh, a, a hitting a price point that, that more customers can, can attain and, you know, quality simply suffers and maybe brand suffers. Um, and you know, Donna herself had no, no right to say no to that deal. Um, and you know, to any subsequent deal that G3 may do. Um, so that bullet certainly dodged, but in the licensing context, there still are some potential pitfalls. So, oh, absolutely. so what, what, 
you know, without naming names. Yeah, no, um, I had a lot of different experiences, and at a certain point, and this is when tailoring became a big buzzword again. This mm-hmm. was in like 2002, 2003. The men's suit was back. Um, Tom Brown came on the scene, and he got everybody excited about suits again. So I signed a suiting license, a dress shirt license, a furnishing license, which means um, neckwear, mm-hmm. cufflinks, all of the kind of uh, belts, socks. And what else was I doing? Accessories, bags, etc. And I found that these were companies that did this day and night. And they were looking for a new label to sell to Macy's, different retailers. And while they respected the name, they were also kind of selling. They were basically asking the stores, well, what do you want? And so I found that I had very, very little design input. Mm -hmm. And the more I tried to input my own design the less successful it became because these were department stores that were looking for a mass marketed garment that they could sell, that they could promote. Mm -hmm. And that was my first introduction to kind of promotional clothing. And what I learned was I had to basically get out of my own way. And it was a little bit, it was not a little bit, it was quite disheartening because I was making great money licensing but I didn't recognize the product. It had no, it had nothing of me in it. And it was selling. I was making really great money in royalty. So I, I enjoyed that. And that was the first time that I actually ever made any money. But I did find that it was a, a soulless adventure mm-hmm. um, that eventually kind of petered out. Um, so... It was, but it was a good learning experience, and yeah. I really did learn about a, a, a different aspect of the industry that I had never encountered before. Well, talking about design, um, you know, with your background and your your levels of experience with both menswear and womenswear, what what is your typical process? Um, and I know you've worked for other brands, so it's 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 situational. But let's just say you're designing your eponymous line, and let's let's perhaps focus on menswear, which sure. is maybe your your original love, and yeah. certainly my preference in <laughs> terms of uh, garments to don. Yes, um, so you have great so, style, by the way. Thank you. Well, we'll we'll get into what you're wearing okay. and, and personal style after this. But I, I'd love to just hear that process. Yeah. So and, my my yeah. design process is it's really fun because I when I went to college I didn't study art. And so one of the things that I found when I was living in London, I knew nobody. So I ended up spending a lot of my time going to museums, seeing every art film and really soaking up the world of art, film, culture, and then kind of mixing that in with sociology, which was my major at Harvard. And so, so much of my inspiration comes from film comes from directors, comes from the avant-garde world of film, especially, and as well as art. And so typically when I'm working on a season, 
I'll zone in and hone in on an artist whose work I love or and, that I want to. Some examples of artists. Uh, for example, a women's collection that I did um, was all about Georgia O'Keeffe okay. and about the Southwest. Uh, one, one men's collection I did was all about Ernest Hemingway, mm-hmm. uh, Francis Bacon. Um, gosh, it kind of goes on and on. And what I liked was that I could dive into the world of this artist or writer or film director and really go deep into what they were about yeah. really kind of and i it was like a wonderful what's the word i'm looking for it was like a um, well, did it t- it must have taken you to rather unexpected places in a way it you know did. it was a, it was a theme but you weren't really sure what was going to come out of it it's not like you backed into your well i'm going to have three knits and i'm going to have two suits and i'm going to right it was a theme and so you, theme. you might have wound up in ernest's hemingway's african adventures exactly versus north american versus paris versus right. you know anything yeah uh, to inspire a whole line exactly so it wasn't really about like okay this season everything's oversized it was really more about what was it about this artist this writer that captivated me in a in a different way and so certainly as far as the as far as the design process would go i would always come up with and continue to come up with a palette first really kind of honing in on what the colors are what's exciting what are those fabric patterns the yarn dyes and then you start looking at you go to premier vision or you start working with different fabric mills and really collaborating with them and seeing like what are they thinking what are they working on because they've been working on their own direction for a year and they've been looking at what's in the marketplace they've been trying to be innovative in whatever way that they can be and so i would see what's out on the market what are what are the new fabrics how can i i would buy you know five yards of this fabric five yards of that fabric make a suit up in it and see how it tailors Mm -hmm. see how it makes up but really all it's kind of like a um you're taking all these different ingredients and create a mood board, a lot of imagery up on a board with fabrics, with colors, and it's like this big collage. Yeah. So a or, lot of it or Pinterest page. Exactly. In in in, in modern day times. Yeah. And in my day, yeah, it was like it was just this wonderful big collage of of different textures, images, a lot of older images, um, a lot of photography from different periods and then I would also do a lot of research I would go to the Met in those days you had great access to all of the old collections Mm -hmm. FIT has an amazing indeed laboratory and library of old clothing and anywhere that I could I would do a lot of research through eBay even um, because there are some great vintage sources there and really looking for what's that detail that I haven't seen in a while how is his coat made from the inside out? And so I would really, it was really like a, um, it was like a, a project that I would do, like writing a paper, but it was right. really a much broader. A lot, of, a lot of diligence. A lot of diligence. Both on, on product, because yeah. you got to make it ultimately, um, but also, you know, peeling back the layers of the onion. You know, what, what was Georgia O'Keeffe, perhaps thinking when she was, you know, painting that particular exactly. cow skull. Or, right. Um, and what was she wearing? Um, <laughs> and where was she living? Yeah. And, um, and so all of those elements would kind of come together. 
And then once I got a group of clothing together, then I would work with a stylist and we would then create a whole new narrative that would then be shown on a runway. And so all of these elements would come together with the music, the styling, the models would bring the clothes to life in a way that surprised me many times. Mm -hmm. And then just working with casting, casting, who would be modeling this? I would always, I've, I think from the get-go, I've been very aware of how white the runways are. Mm -hmm. And diversity has always been very important to me. Sexuality, having models that are possibly... um, You're not really sure if they're men or women Mm -hmm. or where they are in the spectrum. I love really experimenting and exploring the idea of sexuality, of gender, of racial identity and all of those things would then add another layer onto the design and give it a whole different perspective. It would give it a whole different voice that was very exciting to me. Yeah. So creating the clothing and then, but adding these other layers in that were much more about the cultural right. commentary of, of that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, recognizing that, you know, the clothes themselves won't actually be in stores for another nine months. Exactly. Um, that unlocks a couple of questions for me, um, and, and I'll just throw them out to you in turn. So, obviously, we're seeing a, quite a transformation in the way lines are marketed, and we're seeing a, a questioning of the typical model of runway show followed by, you know, flood of orders. Where do you fall on that spectrum macro for the fashion industry, not necessarily for your own brand? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting now because if you look at magazines, there's very few magazines that are showing models on the cover. Mm -hmm. It's always celebrities. And so celebrities are really driving the business in a way that never happened before. And with Instagram and mostly Instagram, if a model or a celebrity is wearing something and they post about it, that brand might explode. So there's a whole other layer that never existed before. And I do believe it is exciting to see runway shows now that are diverse as far as sizing goes, that are showing women of all different shapes and sizes. And there's a, it's a beautiful rainbow of real diversity now. And that is really the norm. Whereas before it was, it was not the norm to see such a diverse cast of, of models. And now, because the market is so international, the customers are looking to identify. They're not just looking at a Caucasian woman anymore. And right. so it's, it's a very, very exciting time, I believe, for the world of diversity. And it's very much, it's very topical. I mean, people are talking about it very openly. And a lot of the casting directors are very vocal about it. And, mm-hmm. and really pushing for inequality. And it's really, it's changing how we see fashion. It's changing how we see beauty. It's changing product as well. Insofar yes. as I am seeing more and more professed unisex brands yes. come um, to market. And so I wonder what your thoughts about that are beyond it being 
a, a good thing, whether whether you believe that or not, but also the challenges they face, knowing what you know about the way the typical wholesale account system works, where there's a menswear buyer and a women's wear buyer, and there's not a unisex buyer. Right. Um, so, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting because I do believe that men are loosening up and they are identifying more on a spectrum than before. The rules are changing garments are loosening up just the silhouette wise women are women can wear the one thing growing up i was always envious of women because they could wear anything right. and they could they and they were, had a lot more to choose from they had a lot more to choose from but guys were like you wear a shirt and a tie and a suit and that's it and when i would go to interviews people that was that was what you wore so the rules have changed the what people are wearing to the office has changed the concept of men wearing color has been very exciting because while men are still possibly wearing a shirt and a pair of pants, now they're exploring with color. So there's all these different elements that are making it more exciting. And I do think that the unisex thing is interesting. Um, I believe that the millennial and whoever the generation is after the millennial, I Z. think the Z, I think that they are less identified by their gender than my generation. So I think that that's very interesting to them. And again, they are men and women are experimenting in ways with their, with how they look, with how they present themselves in a way that's very new and very exciting. So I do believe that these brands that are marketing to a unisex type customer are super interesting, but yeah, it does. It is challenging when you have a men's buyer, women's buyer, there's the men's floor, there's the women's floor, there's not then there isn't like a unisex floor right but the new retailers i think are able to embrace that in a way that it really mixes it up and, and can so blend it can be a bridge yeah because really. there's a lot of guys that are shopping in the women's department and vice versa yeah it is challenging with sizing i've done some at unisex i'm a size eight okay <laughs> god bless you <laughs> The, uh, but I'm that, a big girl. I yeah, like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but the challenge is that men and women are built differently. And so when you're trying, when one is trying to do something that is from a men's suiting company or a men's tailor, it's, it's, it's a whole different set of measurements. And it, so it doesn't always translate and vice versa. So there is, there are challenges to this new kind of unisex approach to design. Yeah. Well, so you've come in looking typically manly um, <laughs> or masculine, I should say. That may be a function of it being two degrees outside. Mm -hmm. It's one of the coldest days of the year. But um, I always ask sort of the, the typical four W questions. Uh, and so I'll start with you um, on the on the what. I mean, for our listeners who are merely listening and aren't watching on YouTube, what have you come in to? with today and um you know you can you can layer onto that who who designed Absolutely. each of these items so and this is sort of my general uniform um i'm wearing gap jeans that have a little bit of stretch in them which is kind of a new thing um that i'm starting to embrace i'm wearing black nike gym shoes which i love mm -hmm. i'm wearing a faux leather black belt um i still wear belts a lot of guys don't tuck their shirts and i still tuck my shirts in <laughs> And I wear belts. I find I found a couple of brands that make belts that are in a faux leather or faux suede. Okay. And then I'm wearing a denim shirt, and that's kind of my uniform. And then I've got a Uniglo 
uh, knit cap on, which I've really kind of, there's something about wearing caps. The other gentleman in the room was wearing a yeah, cap. Yeah, our producer Reese is a big cap wearer. It's funny that um, it just feels good on the, you know, it, there's something kind of comforting. And um, you don't get too hot inside, no. either of you. No. Reese, Reese is supposed to be a fly on the wall, so you, you can't hear him. But <laughs> but yeah, no, so it was funny because um, one of my inspirations for one of my collections was the deer hunter, Robert Nero, and yeah. he wore these knit watch caps. And so I've kind of um, started wearing this cap in his honor because he had great style in that film. That was one of my great inspiration films. And because it is two degrees outside, I'm wearing my new favorite coat, and I'll grab it. Yeah, bring it into the shot here. There's a new brand, newish brand called Save the Duck. And what I love about them, it's a vegan brand. This is the warmest coat I've ever worn. And this oh, wow. is the, that's the label, Save the Duck. Okay, looks like a little rubber ducky. Exactly. There. And so what they do, so I, um, many winter coats are filled with goose down, down feathers. And um, I don't wear feathers. I don't wear down and I don't wear fur, so this coat actually has faux fur lining. It's filled with a very innovative new down alternative, and it's exciting because it's the warmest coat I've ever had, and it's completely sustainable and vegan, which is an exciting thing for me. Um, and so really when I've been buying winter coats these days, one of the brands that I go to is Patagonia because mm-hmm. they do a lot of down alternative Absolutely. Clothing that is, again, super innovative and super warm and performance. And, and very known for upcycling exactly. a lot of the products. Like they're an amazing company. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, just comments, you know, you're, you're, you're mixing a lot of blues with the black, which is, I, I do that too. In fact, today yeah. I too am doing that. Um, your shoes are black and your belt is indeed black, right? Yes. How do you, do, do you ever do brown and black? Is that something that makes you throw up in your mouth if you... That does, yeah. Okay. I'm an old school that way. <laughs> and I do think that um, some people wear brown shoes and a black belt. Um, and these are such funny old school menswear rules. But I always wear a black belt with black shoes. If I was wearing blue shoes, I would wear a brown belt. Okay. Um but, um, yeah, I have brown, black, and tan belts and, um, you know, the shoes. But I do wear tons of – I wear mostly gym shoes. Being vegan and being a designer, I feel a little bit freed up. I don't have to wear dress shoes. Yeah. So I wear gym shoes with everything. I wear gym shoes with, with a tuxedo. And I love all of the new gym shoes that are non-leather. And they, again, are super comfortable and they have – very sort of futuristic, innovative design Absolutely. aspects to them. Well, and that, as you know, has been probably over the last five years, the biggest growth market oh in the gosh. fashion industry has been not footwear broadly considered, but very specifically athletic footwear, which is not intended to be worn on a court uh, or in a field, At but, all. you know, in the city. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere with tailored clothing, yeah. which is a real challenge for for men in more traditional settings, perhaps like myself, yeah. who, you know, it, it it's hard to know what belt to wear with a leather sneaker because typically that sneaker might not be your traditional burnished tan exactly. or black. It yeah. might be a cream colored and, you know, my arsenal of cream colored belts is <laughs> relatively small. Exactly. Um, but back to you. So uh, another W would be just when. And by that question, I really mean the seasonality. And, and I find for most men, 
they either don't know or most of what they wear is is seasonless. Mm-hmm. Is any of this seasonal? To your uh, yeah, I'm wearing long johns. Okay. So I wear long, I mean, again, in, in this weather, but I'm wearing Uniglow, Thermo, Thermal. They have like this, again, this type of performance fabric. So I wear long johns with my jeans. Uh, or if I'm out like walking dogs, I've, I volunteer to shelter. I have these wonderful flannel lined chinos from L.L. Bean. Okay. So I'm really into sort of outdoor type clothing brands. I think they're super inspiring in a very different way than something you're going to buy at Bergdorf Goodman. Yeah. And the last, which is sort of a, an omnibus for, you know, why, why did you choose this particular ensemble? Again, two degrees outside. I think that kind of answers itself, but was there any adherence to, I'm going to be on Doug's show. And so therefore I want to look particularly denim or, or not. Well, two things. So, um, this week I had a meeting at the gap, um, an exploratory meeting and so my head is all about denim right now. Okay. <clears throat> I was speaking with them. They really are refocusing back to denim. So that's been in my mind. I've just been looking at denim a lot. And so when I was getting dressed today, I thought, okay, I could wear a plaid flannel shirt, which I wear a lot of. But no, that's a little bit. I've been wearing that for years. And as long as I have enough layers on, I'm warm enough in denim. And I mm-hmm. really love denim. So I wanted to wear denim. The other thing is, now what was I thinking about this? I was coming up with some reason. Oh, the other, like the truthful reason is I did have a black hoodie on, but before I came here, I was holding one of my dogs who sheds white hair. And I looked at myself and I had white hair all over me. So I was (laughs) going to wear one of my own hoodies with my white Tiny Tim three-legged dog logo, but it was covered in hair. So I switched. Got it. Got it. Well, that, (laughs) you know, I, um, I have a great old military coat that uh-huh. is a super super dark navy Beautiful. blue which i hadn't worn in years yeah um and it actually i i wrap it around a form that's in my apartment and it really kind of is great i took it off the form Love this it. morning but i i almost broke down a little bit because as, as you know i lost my dog this yes. last summer and she was a white lab yeah and there's still about a hundred of her hairs all over the coat. Uh, so I was sort of picking them out Ugh. sort of sadly in the cab on the way in. I'm sorry. I know uh, that's tough. But on dogs, yep. you have been, uh, you know, a, a very staunch advocate uh, for canines, um, both as companions, uh, but also as as forgotten you know, lives in a lot of ways to the extent that uh, many of them are homeless. Yes. Um, Maybe talk about how that has has really impacted your life because you have taken your passion for design and really applied it in, in a way that advocates for homeless animals. I have, yes. So when I was 40, I was going through an early midlife crisis and I adopted a dog. And his name, uh, he died about eight years ago. His name was Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim came from North Shore Animal League. He had lost a limb, so they called him Tiny Tim. He lost his limb on Christmas Eve. Mm. And um, he was my hairy soulmate. He changed my life. So when I opened my store, I started doing adoption events. They would bring a big mobile unit, bring a bunch of dogs and cats. And we'd have these great adoption events where people would come and adopt dogs, cats, puppies, kittens. And it was such an inspiring thing that I started a foundation in tiny tim's name is called it is called the tiny tim rescue fund 
I started meeting a lot of people that were in the shelters doing rescue, pulling dogs and cats off the euthanasia list Mm -hmm. because in the big cities and in smaller rural areas, dogs and cats will end up in shelters. And if they're not adopted or rescued by a rescue group, they're euthanized because they just... What is the typical time frame for that? It really depends. Some dogs, for example, I volunteer at a shelter in Yonkers and there'll be dogs, they don't euthanize there unless a very bad behavior comes through and they're they're aggressive and violent. So that's very, very rare. But otherwise, the dogs might stay there for years, eight years. I mean, one dog was there for nine years before she was rescued. So, but typically with a city shelter... And the city shelter in New York City has a live release rate, meaning all the animals that come into the shelter are, there's 94% of them are released back into, that either they're adopted or rescued. So there's, but they still do euthanize, whether it's a health issue or an aggression issue. Um, But I started a rescue fund and I started a collection of clothing with my dog's logo and all of the money that I raise, all the profits that come from the sale of the clothing, the accessories go to help rescue groups and go to help shelters. And that has really inspired my design sensibility. And it's, um, it's really fun. I have an online store, johnbartlettny.com, and it really is a fun kind of side project because I'm designing something that's really giving back. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, John, great having you in this Thank morning. You. So happy uh, thanks to be for here. coming intrepidly in on oh, such a great. cold day it's for a your day. for your efforts. You'll have a copy of The Laws of Style, oh, which uh, I'll put a little personal note please in Please autograph for it for me. Uh, and, and listeners, you too can obtain a copy by going on Amazon or the American Bar Association site. Uh, throw in Douglas Hand and The Laws of Style. It should come up right up for you. Follow on Hand of the Law. And, and John, you have social media handles that are yes, tuned got, to your name? Or yeah, why don't John you... Bartlett NY on Instagram. And I actually have a podcast that's just launched called Dog Save the People. Excellent. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.